Nehemiah chapter 8, 9 through 12. Follow along with me. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest, and the scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. And do not mourn or weep. For all the people had wept as they heard the words of the law. And then he said to them, Go your way and eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Jesus, thank you. Always, always thank you. Thank you for yourself. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for this body. Thank you for this church. Thank you that your word continues to go forth. That it continues to to not, not just go forth to those of us who believe in you, who believe in your word, who want to hear from you, who want to meet you day after day after day, but that your, that, your, that your word, that your gospel continues to go forth to people who have not heard it before, and that your gospel continues to save, continues to change lives. Lord, help us to be a part of that work, and thank you that you have invited us to be so. We are here this morning to meet with you, our resurrected King. We love you. We trust you with everything. Speak now through the power of your spirit, through your open word. We are your servants. We are your children, and we are listening. It's in your name that we pray, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. So this was kind of a a joke in my own mind. And unfortunately, a lot of the things that, are, that start as a joke in my own head become something that I actually say to all of you. So I'm sorry about that. But as I was reading through this, these verses this week, I, I thought, you know, the, uh, these verses are really great, but man, you've got to have a little bit of the chapter 8 in there, and you've got to talk a little bit about chapter 9 to get the full context. And so I'm, I coined this term, and I think I, this is the, the joke. I laughed at myself quietly in my room alone. That's what I did. But I think I'm going to keep it. I call it push broom preaching. You know, when you're using a push broom, you got to go back to go forward, or you're going to leave a whole bunch of stuff behind. And so I want to I want to begin this morning as we consider verses nine through twelve by go, by going back into chapter eight and 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 briefly just for a moment, I kind of just want to go back to the very beginning of the Bible, because this this section here in Nehemiah has has a feel to it that's sort of sort of like let's let's pause and recap for a moment. Let's pause and let's recap. And then we'll keep going. And, and, and the recap here is, is quite profound and covers generations of human history. What we learn in the scriptures and what we, what we learn, uh, I have in mind particularly in the book of Genesis, there's this, there's this climactic statement It comes from the lips of Joseph, who after being sold into slavery, locked in a prison for no good reason, and then thought he was going to get out of prison, but then stayed in prison, and then finally got out and was reunited with his family, with the very brothers who had sold him into slavery to begin with. It's quite a a gut-wrenching story. 
Um, and at the end of it, what, what, what he says to his brothers is, you meant it for evil, what you did, by selling me into slavery, by hating me, by trying to get rid of me, by wanting to kill me, you meant that for evil. You know that you did. But God meant it for good. And this is, the, this is just the, the repeated story. It just happens again and again and again and again and again. Human evil and human rebellion and human idolatry is, is met with graceful warning after graceful warning after graceful warning from the Lord. And then even punishment. And, and, and not only punishment directly from the hand of the Lord, but also just the natural punishment that comes from doing things that are dumb. And Israel has done things that are dumb. Um, and it's, it's, an, it's an amazing statement that, that what, what, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. So let's just stick with that for a minute. We serve a God who brings beauty out of ashes, who brings life out of death, and is always working, even in the midst of our mayhem, to bring about human flourishing and salvation. He's always in the midst doing it. That's the kind of God that we serve. And you see it over and over and over again in the history of Israel. I'm sure you've seen it over and over again in your own life. We see it over and over again in the Bible. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And if you consider the, the history of the people of Israel, even just up to this point in Nehemiah, it's a profound and amazing statement. And it's a profound and amazing truth and an amazing testimony to God's faithfulness that in chapter 8, verse 1, it says right here starting off that the people met together as one man. What are the odds of that? Do you, do you know the history of Israel? Do you know what they've, what they've been through, what they've experienced up until this point? Slavery in Egypt, decades wandering around in the wilderness, and then finally whenever uh, David came along, Saul came along, Solomon came along, they, they split up into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and then the southern kingdom. They had their own civil war going on, and then Assyria came in and wiped out the northern kingdom, dispersed everybody, took them into captivity, took them into slavery, and then Babylon came in and wiped out the, the southern kingdom and took them all into captivity and slavery, and yet the Lord working in all of that, pause and recap, the people are now, by God's faithfulness and by bringing his people back together, by not utterly destroying them, by not utterly deserting them, they came back together as one as one man, as one people, as one group. They're back together with themselves. And the thing that has been uniting them through the book of Nehemiah is this, is this, this adversity, this travail. They're released and they go to rebuild the walls and the temple and the whole city. And, and that work as, as insurmountable as it seems and as unlikely as it seems that they're going to succeed, and with the pushback and the, the hatred and the doubts and the fears, they continue to push forward in the, in the work that unifies them. Their, their adversity unites them together. Their, their work unites them together. And you see there, the, they came together as one man. They're, they're back in the city. They're rebuilding it. There's, there's the beauty. Our Lord turns beauty. Takes, takes what's ugly, takes what's death, take, takes what is decay and brings life and flourishing out of it. He can do that. That's what he's like. That's what he's doing. That's what he does. That's, a, that's the God that we serve. He's good and he's trustworthy. The, the people come together. And it says in chapter 8 that they asked. The people told Ezra, bring, bring the book. Bring the book. Let's have it read. Let's have it heard. 
And so from early morning to midday, the people listened and they were attentive. They're listening to the word all day long. They ask for this. What, what, now that the city is rebuilt, now that the temple is, is, is back and that we have the walls again, what kind of city is this going to be? What kind of people are we going to be? Now that we have a city, what are we going to do with it? Well, we're going to be a biblical people. Open up the book, Ezra. We want to hear from it. They listened from early morning to midday, and it says that they were attentive And then it says that the book was read, and in verse 6 of chapter 8, they said, Amen and Amen. They were attentive, and they were in agreement. Amen and Amen. But they were also convicted. And so they begin to weep. And so there's people in... In the, in, the, in the midst of the, of, there's people that are in the midst of this who are running around and they're explaining what is being spoken to them. Verse, verse 8, they read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense or the interpretation so that the people understood what was being read. And I, I have to just pause there for a moment because that is all I want to do with my life, is to, is to be a person who brings you the scriptures and nothing else, not my opinion of the scriptures, not my preference of what I wish the scriptures did or did not say, but to unapologetically stand before anybody and say, this is the Bible, it is the infallible, true, perfect word of God to us. Whether we like it or not, whether we we agree with it or not, it does not say that Ezra gave his opinion It doesn't say that the people listened to what Ezra had to say other than that he was reading from the book. And that is what I want to do. That is what Door of Hope wants to do. And I I was thinking about this and I I text Josh and I said, hey, is it cool if I do this? He said, yeah, it's cool if you do this. Something that we've been talking about uh, as a a staff and as a teaching team is going through the entire Bible in four years. And I I think that's a cool idea every day without being paid for it. Like, I just think that's dope. I want to, I want to do that. But I was especially, uh, and maybe a little bit extra convicted by it this, this week because I was listening to this, this pastor who's 78, 79 years old. He's been preaching since he was in his 20s. And he said, Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 9 through 12. Man, I have never preached on this before. And I thought, and he even said, he's like, it's kind of weird, isn't it? <laughs> I've been doing this for 50 plus years and I've never preached on this text. I... I don't, I don't want to be, I don't want that to happen. I'm not, I'm not shaming that guy, but I, I, don't, I don't want that to happen. I, I want to teach the fullness of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. And so it's still in the works. We don't know exactly all the details, exactly when it's going to be. But just put that in, in, in your, the back of your mind somewhere that we're, we're thinking evening service through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation in, in four years or so. You've got to do, do five chapters at a time to make that, to make that happen. And, man, I am ready. I am Red Bull. I don't care. I will, I will, I will chew. I will, I will chew it down, man. I am ready to teach the Bible. I love this. I love giving the word of God to the people. Not my opinion, not my preference, man. I, I want to teach the Bible. So there was people there that were ready to explain what was happening, what was being read so that the people understood. And so verse 9, the people wept. Nehemiah who was the governor and Ezra the priest and the scribe and all the Levites who taught the people, said to the people, this day is holy to the Lord, do not mourn or weep. The people are mourning and they are weeping. They ask Ezra to bring the word forward. They listen to it read for hours upon hours. They say amen and amen and, and yet 
agreeing with the scriptures, they're hearing the law of God, and they weep. And we'll, we're going to talk about that again near the end, but just note for now that they hear it, they wanted to hear it, they agree with it, and they're weeping. They understand, given their history, that there's a lot of sin, there's a lot of rebellion, there's a lot of idolatry, and they acknowledge it, and they're brought to tears. They're not necessarily weeping because of God's grace quite yet, because if you read if we keep reading, we see that it says twice that they were grieved. They weren't just, they weren't, it wasn't some, some ambiguous weeping. It was a very specific grief that they were feeling. They understand that there's guilt. They understand that they have fallen short of the glory of the God. They understand their history. And that's, that's a good place to begin, but they don't, they don't stay there. They, they acknowledged their guilt. And so we read forward. So the Ezra and Nehemiah and Levites, they say, do not mourn, this day is holy. In verse 10, then he said to them, go your way, eat and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to the Lord, and do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And that phrase, the joy of the Lord is your strength, there's sort of an easy back door, there's an escape hatch for a guy in my position because I can easily and confidently tell you that I have no idea what that means because it's too big. It's too beautiful. It's, it's so insurmountable that it's just to be, it's one of those things that you, you take it into yourself. The joy of the Lord is your strength. You can give some utterance to what that means, and I'm, and I'm going to try. I'm not going to completely jump ship on this, but that's one of those things that you experience but can't exactly express. You know, you, have you ever, ever experienced this? You've seen a waterfall or a sunset or heard the birds chirping early in the morning or listened to the sound of children playing in, in the park somewhere and it, 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 there's this something that radiates inside of you and it's so good and you just can't quite put words to it. And that's, that's really the big part of the beauty of it, isn't it? The joy of the Lord is your strength. It's impossible to describe accurately but that's part of what makes it so beautiful. He's so good. He's so good. He brings death out of, he brings life out of death. He brings beauty out of ashes. He's so good. And who he is in himself and who he is to us is so rad that there's no words to describe it except rad, you know? The human language falls short of this. But some of the joy of this we're, 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 given, we're given insight into this, and, and so I just want us today to, to meditate on the joy of the Lord, who he is, what he thinks about us, and how that should inform what we think about him. This joy of the Lord, one, one thing that we know is that this joy is an eternal communal joy. It's the joy of perfect family, perfect love, completely, absolutely unified, absolutely at peace. Because Jesus is God the Son. Because God in his essence, in himself, is triune, that he exists in three distinct persons, absolutely mysterious. We just worship at it. We cannot mathematically dissect it. We cannot figure out what the Trinity exactly means other than God is communal. 
in the very beginning of Scripture, he says, let us make men and women in our image. It's profound. But at least it means that he is a community within himself. The last night of Jesus' life before he's given away into the hands of his betrayers, he's talking to his disciples. It's a section of Scripture called the Upper Room Discourse. This is in John 15. He says, as the Father, listen to this, listen to this, eternal love, eternal joy, eternal peace, no sin, no tears, no crying, no pain, nothing of the sort. This is what he says, as the Father has loved me, Jesus is saying, as the Father has loved Jesus for all of eternity, so I have loved you. Wrap your mind around that. Filter your day through that. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you, remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love Exactly how as I have kept the Father's commandments and I remain in his love. This, the love between God the Father and God, God the Son was perfect. And it was Jesus' delight to obey the Father, even in the garden as he was being led to death. It was his joy to be obedient. If you love me, you will keep my commands. You will remain in my love just as I have kept the Father's commands and remain in his love. John 17:3 says this. Father, this is the high priestly prayer. All of John 17 is Jesus praying to the Father. He says this, "Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had before the world even existed. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God." That means that Jesus existed when the beginning began. He was already there. The love between Father and Son and Holy Spirit already there for all of eternity, already that was existing. That love, that community, God was existing. And he is saying, give me that glory back, the glory that I had. It's, it's an eternal communal joy. The joy of, your, of the Lord is your strength. Part of what that means is an eternal family of joy and of love. That's good news. And it means that the most fundamental thing beyond all the cosmos, why does the world exist? Why are we here? Why does the earth spin around the sun? And why are there galaxies that far away? And all of the questions that we ask, the most true thing behind everything is a loving relationship. That's the truth. That's good news. I'm, I'm shocked that the... That that truth gets so much pushback from people. That's good news. The truth of the universe, the fundamental truth of the universe is not atoms and quarks and protons and neutrons. It's a relationship, an eternal loving relationship. Glorify me in the, with your own presence, with the glory that I had before the world even existed. And, and, and so the joy of the Lord is a communal joy. It's an eternal joy. It's a joy, it's a, it's a joy that, is, that, is, that is familial, loving, peaceful, perfect. And the Lord rejoices over us. John 3.16, he so loved the world. Messed up as we were. Backslidden, sinful, idolatrous, he sent his son to die. He sent his son so that whoever should believe in him, that relationship changed. He sent his son to put on human flesh, truly God, truly man, simultaneously to put on human sin. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. That is just, 
I can't expound on it anymore. Just think about that. He loves us. He sent his son to us and for us and for his glory. Zephaniah 3 says that he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. The Lord, the Lord God, Yahweh, is a, is a relationship. He's, he's triune. And he, has a, and he rejoices over us. He sings over us. So there's, a, there's a, a bit of a debate going on. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Well, does that, does that mean his joy over us or our joy in him? And maybe it's my youth. Maybe it's my ignorance. Maybe it's my low IQ. I, I don't know. But I just don't think that that's an argument worth having. He rejoices over us. And we rejoice in him. Period. Both are in scripture. And both of those things personally give me a whole lot of strength, a whole lot of comfort, knowing that, that he rejoices over you with loud singing. What an amazing truth. And, and this, Isaiah 62, verse 5, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. The Lord rejoices over you. Israel, generations, Sin, rebellion, idolatry. I mean, have you read the Old Testament? A lot, a lot of bad stuff. And the Lord is still drawing them in. Yes, there is punishment. They do, they do get, they, they do reap what they sow. But the Lord never cuts them off. And we're getting to that. They, they say so in, in chapter 9, but I'm getting ahead of myself. But he's still drawing them in. He's still drawing them in. He loves us. And his, his love, his presence, leads us to repentance and to joy. He sings over you. He rejoices over you as the, bride rejo- as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride. One of, my, one of my favorites, John 14, 2. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. And the disciples had just been arguing with one another about which one of them was going to be greatest in the kingdom. And Jesus, we talked about patience at church in the park this last Wednesday. Jesus loving them patiently. He washes their feet. And he tells them in John 14, In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. Jesus wants to be with you personally. By the word of his power, he upholds the universe, we're told in Hebrews. That good God, eternally with the Father, Jesus Christ, wants to be with you. If I go to prepare a place, I'm going to come back and I'm going to get you so that we can be roomies forever. Guys, that lifts me up on a bad day, I'm telling you. That lifts me up on a bad day. I pray that that lifts you up. Amen. That's good news. The joy of the Lord is your strength. So Jesus wants to be with you. He rejoices over you. He loves you. One of my favorite Bible verses is Luke 12, 32. Jesus says, fear not, little flock. It is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It stokes him to give you the kingdom. He loves it. He wants to do it. It's his good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So he rejoices over us, and we have joy in him. 
Our joy is in him. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Yeah, all of that. I have joy in that. I have joy in him. I have gratitude in him. I have, I have gratitude and I have, I have thankfulness, which is a redundant term, but I take peace and I take solidarity and understanding the crazy world. You look around it, hey, that's okay. Go and be salt and be light because look at who's rejoicing over you. And he's, he's described to you right here in the book. Open up the book that people wanted to hear the word. Our joy is in him. The, the people are told in verses 9 through 12, do not weep, do not be grieved, do not be grieved. Change how you're acting, Israel. Change what you're thinking. Ch- change what you think is fundamentally true about this moment. Because they're weeping. And why, why, why weep? Why are they weeping? They, they asked for the word. They heard the word for a long time. And they're weeping even though they're in agreement with it. They understand their guilt. Chapter 9, which we're going to look at in the next couple of weeks, is an entire chapter of confession. The whole chapter is, is Israel confessing the generations of sin that they have conducted. The Lord has been gracious to them again and again and again. Brought Abram out of Ur of Chaldees. Renamed him Abraham. Brought them out of Egypt. Divided the waters. They passed through. And then he, then he swept Egypt up in the waters. He has shown them grace. He guided them by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He never departed from them. Their clothes never became uh, their rags and their feet were never swollen. He provided for them water. He provided for them food. He did not cut them off utterly. And again and again, chapter 9 says, and we rebelled and we stiffened our necks, but your grace and your mercy continued with us. Thank you, Lord. They are grieving over their sin. They really are. And we should. We have, we have sinned against a perfect, holy, righteous, all ever present and all knowing, all powerful, thrice holy God. There's a time for weeping And there is a time for rejoicing. There is a time for sorrow and there is a time for dancing. And the book is opened and the prophet says, do not be grieved. The Levites say, do not be grieved. They confess their generations of sin. And just to to teach the Bible, because nobody ever ever told me this, um, and I don't want to make that same mistake, If, if you aren't familiar with the Old Testament and you, you look at it and it, I mean, it's big and there's a lot of weird names and there's a lot of genealogies and there's a lot of numbers and it can, be, it, it can seem overwhelming. There's a few places in the Bible where you get sort of an overview, uh, sort of, an, a, sort of a, like an ultra abridged version. Acts chapter 7 is one of them. Read Acts chapter 7. Stephen just goes through a quick history of Israel. It just at least will get your mind on where the Old Testament goes. And also in, in Nehemiah chapter, chapter 9, if you're, if you're new to the Bible, if you're trying to get your, your mind wrapped around it, those are two good places to just sort of understand the general thrust of the Old Testament, where, where the people went, what they did, what, what occurred. It's, it's very brief, but it will at least give you an idea. And I, I wish that someone had told me that whenever I was, when I was, when I was new to the Bible. And so... Acts chapter 7, Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 9. So they confess their sins. They're crying over their guilt. But then verse 11 says that they are calmed. The Levites calmed all the people saying, be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. The Levites calmed the people down. The Levites quieted them. And so they are calmed. And in verse 12, they rejoice. So all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great 
rejoicing because they understood the words that were declared to them. So they understood that. What did, what did, what did they understand? What was, what was new? They understood that they had something more. Did they have generations of sin and rebellion and captivity and enslavement? And all? Yeah, they did. They did that. that. They had that. But they had something more. They had something more lasting. They had something more foundational. They had something more true. They had something eternal. And that's a, found, a foundation. The, the word strength, the joy of the Lord is your strength, that word can also be translated, a found, it's a foundation or a stronghold. A stronghold of safety and protection. The joy of the Lord is your stronghold of safety and protection. The people realize that bad as things might, may have been and bad as things may be currently and as bad as things may get in the future, we have a stronghold. We have an immutable fortress of safety. His name is Yahweh. And he rejoices over us. They had a stronghold. They had strength. And so they understood. They went away rejoicing, eating and drinking and sharing and sending portions. They're, they're sharing with people, which just, it just tempers the, the, uni, the, the unity that they already had. They came together for the work. And now in joy, they're sharing with those who don't have anything yet prepared. Their, their joy, because of their grace, is spilling over to grace and joy to others. They're sharing with people. So they go away, eating, drinking, sending portions, and making great rejoicing because they had understood. What did they understand? They had a stronghold. They understood, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to skip over and steal a little, a little piece out of chapter 9. They, under, they understood this. Chapter 9, verse 17. They, that is, that is the people, refused to obey. And they were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and they appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and you did not forsake them. They understood that. Abounding in steadfast love. They were ready to return to slavery in Egypt, but the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And he did not forsake them. An easy, an easy way, I'm going to try to remember this, so I'm just going to share this with you. Nehemiah 8, verses 9, 10, and 11. 8, 9, 10, and 11. Just make a rule in your mind. Just, just go 8, 9, 10, and 11 rule. If you're ever feeling condemned and beaten down and burdened, because, because the fact of the matter is, is that we are people who have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. That is absolutely true. And so... Jesus took the punishment of that sin upon himself. And so the Lord will, will lead us in conviction towards repentance and joy and salvation. That's, that's the goal. The devil will just try to condemn you. It's Satan's prerogative to beat you down and beat you up and just leave you beaten there. Bloody and 
dying. That's, that's, what, that's what the devil wants. The Lord will convict us, but it's leading us towards repentance, towards joy, to, towards salvation, towards himself, which is the song that we just read. Salvation is him. It is him. And he convicts us to lead us to him. And so verses 8, chapter 8, 9, 10, and 11 the people are told, do not grieve, do not weep, do not grieve, do not weep. And someone might be saying, are you, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Don't grieve? Do you know how bad Israel was? Do you know how bad I am or how bad I have, I have been? I'm beyond saving. I'm beyond help. Look at my history. Look at the generations of degradation, sin, idolatry, rebellion, whatever, whatever. His blood... And his grace is bigger and better than that. He is a God ready to forgive. Gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And he did not forsake him. If you're here this morning and you think, yeah, right. But you don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. You don't know what I've seen. Friends, I don't care. You're not stronger than Jesus. You are not stronger than his blood. You are not stronger than his sacrifice. The people understood their sin and they repented. And then they were told, now rejoice. And go share with people. Rejoice, the day is holy. You have a stronghold. You have strength. You have the Lord. You have safety and protection forever. The joy of the Lord is your strength. He did not abandon. He is quick and ready to forgive. No matter what kind of mess you have been. And the, and the Bible tells us so. And you, you might even be hearing what I'm saying right now. And I pray by the power of God the Spirit that he convicts you of that. That he convicts you of the kindness of God. Because we're told in the book of Romans that it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. It's his kindness that undoes us. It's his presence that leads us to repentance and joy. Because he's so good. Because he's so kind. Because he is, has so much long-suffering and so much patience for us. And one of the coolest stories that, that showcases this is in John chapter 8. If you don't know the story, write this down and read it later. John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. A woman is caught in the act of adultery. The Lord knows that there's something in her heart. She's sorry. She's repentant. She's cast down before Jesus. And the people that threw her onto the ground are ready to kill her. And Jesus looks her in, in the eye. He, 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 he sends the people away. It's an incredible story. We don't have time to get into it. That's why you need to write it down and go read it for yourself. But Jesus looks at this woman. Suddenly they're alone. The God of the whole cosmos and this woman who was just caught in the act of adultery are face to face. That's a suffocatingly terrifying place to be. And he looks at her and says, where are your accusers? And she says, there are none, Lord. He says to her, Neither do I condemn you. Now, go sin no more. Neither do I condemn you. He is ready to forgive. And so, how to end something like this, I have no idea. I'm in over my, I'm in over my head. I'm out of my depth here. This is who the Lord is. 
Paul, the apostle, had a, had, a, had a pretty rough go of things a lot of the time. You know, he was shipwrecked, beaten, starving. He was stoned nearly to death. Uh, he was on the run a lot. And there's this place in, in Philippians where he's, he's, he's writing, he's in prison, and he's writing this letter, and the letter is just abounding with joy. Prison, schmizen, give me prison. I'm going to heaven. He doesn't care. He's, and he's sharing that joy with the people that he's writing to. And he, and he does say, you know, ah, I would rather be away from the body and with the Lord. That'd be better. But, but for now, I'm convinced that I'm going to stay here with you. And this is what he says, Philippians 125. He says, I'm convinced of this. I will remain with you for your joy. He wants to tell people. All of the reasons they have for joy, all of the resources they have in the Lord. That he takes in these ragamuffin children, convicts them of sin, loves them, cleans their tears off their face, and says, Rejoice. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Jesus, God in the flesh, came here and walked on this real actual planet right here on earth to accomplish that for us. There's a time for weeping and there's a time for rejoicing. That's what he's like. That's what God is like. I think that's all I need to say. That's what God is like. He's slow to anger. He's ready to forgive. He's good. He rejoices over us, and so we can rejoice in him. Amen?